Welcome to a new episode of Priada, a Wilson Center podcast about entrepreneurship in the MENA region. I'm Marissa Hurma, co-host of the podcast and director of the Middle East program at the Wilson Center. Together with Jordan-based Ahmad Shawa of the Howdy Arabia podcast. This month, we zoomed into all things youth and entrepreneurship. And today we will be chatting with UNICEF's youth expert at the Jordan country office, Georgia Verisco. Um, Jordan, akin to other countries in the MENA region, has one of the youngest populations worldwide, with, according to uh, UNICEF, 63% of its population under the age of 30. Of course, this presents an opportunity for Jordan, only if youth are prepped and ready to enter the workforce, but also if they're able to find jobs or to create them. But as also UNICEF notes, this youth bulge is not without its challenges. Thank you so much for joining us today, Georgia. Um, Looking forward to this conversation. Great. Thank you, Marisa. And it's a pleasure to be here today. So let's zoom into some of the work that you do um, in Amman uh, concerning youth and adolescence. Um, as we said, Jordan has a young population. Uh, the World Bank uh, report a few months ago was alarmingly um, basically highlighting that Jordan's youth unemployment is at 50%. Um, so why does Jordan continue to str- struggle on this front? And what does UNICEF do in collaboration, I assume, with the government and other organizations to try to address this challenge? Uh, thank you, Marisa. Yeah, indeed, uh, uh, the World Bank did uh, paint quite a bleak picture when it comes to youth and youth unemployment. And in particular, I think you've mentioned the high level of youth unemployment, but I think for Jordan, it would be also really important to talk about um, the number of uh, of um, women unemployment, which also, according to the World Bank, is uh, uh, the highest of any country not at war. So you have uh, sort of a, a double double difficult difficulties. You have the youth issues and you have the female and sort of the gender gap issue. Um, so UNICEF, of course, is uh, focused on addressing child rights and youth rights. And um, in Jordan in specific, looking at the issue of um, preparing young people for the world of work is, of course, uh, very, very important. And when we say uh, the young people in Jordan, of course, for UNICEF, we mean all vulnerable adolescents and young people who live in the country. Um, um, Because we do have an approach which focuses on vulnerability which means that we look at the issue of all youth, whether they are Jordanians or they're refugees, Syrian, Palestinian, Iraqi asylum seekers, and and all the others. So when you start putting all the different lenses, the the challenges become even even greater, as as you can just imagine. Um, Our program does have the vulnerability focus, and we do think um, very much in a localized approach and looking at the situation nationwide. So we have a very adaptable intervention that may work really well, I don't know, in Man, um, but maybe slightly different when we're looking at addressing the um, issues of adolescence and youth, for example, in the refugee camps. So the programs that we support really focus on the preparedness of young people. 
and combines uh, providing adolescents and youth with the right skills um, to be able to become, uh, um, I guess, to increase employability. But of course, it's part of that is related to employability and part of that is also focused on uh, civic engagement, which is e equally important or it's a part of the, of the puzzle. Um, and of course, focusing, of course, on the life skills. So after you support them with the sort of the skills, you need to provide them with the opportunity to apply those skills. And we have a number of programs which focus on social innovation, social entrepreneurship, volunteering. And then we look at really bridging the gap towards employment with more tailored programs that look at both uh, sides on uh, the technical and vocational side, because as we know, I think it's 70% of the, of the employers in Jordan are small to medium enterprises. There is a small, uh, smaller pool of, I guess, of private sector of the bigger, larger private sector. And much of the, I guess, employment opportunity do align more with the technical and vocational training. And then we have, of course, entrepreneurship component where you support youth with access to entrepreneurship uh, skills, but also looking at what are the bottlenecks for youth accessing um, uh, entrepreneurship opportunities. So the issue of uh, financing for enterprises, so it's not just a mindset, it's a financing. Um, and then uh, hands-on support to enterprises. And in a nutshell, this is what UNICEF does together with a multitude of partners from, uh, of course, the government, but also CBOs and NGOs and uh, royal uh, foundations. So um, you touched upon so many different topics that um, I know Aymad and I want to dig into, but I just want to hone, hone into one thing that you mentioned before we get into the details of entrepreneurship, which is technical and vocational education yeah. slash training. Um, I am sure that this came up in, in your work and this came up in our research, not only in Jordan, but across the MENA region. There is this shame culture um, yeah. associated with technical and vocational um, jobs. But the sector itself needs a lot of work, particularly mm -hmm. um, uh, institutions that are run by the public sector. But we're also seeing some public sector educational entities um, or hybrid models, uh, such as, you know, the Hussein Technical University or Luminous uh, College that are really trying to reform and revolutionize technical mm -hmm. education, like make it attractive, make it, um, I guess, uh, inviting not just for young people, but for their families, mm -hmm. who in many cases have a lot to say about their, their children's um, trajectory in life. So um, how do you see this progressing from yeah. your perspective? Yeah. So, I mean, this is a very large, uh, large topic, I guess, to address because it cannot be, I think when it comes to TVET, it's uh, not an ISO, there is not one answer, right? Uh, there is, a, it's a big puzzle and there's loads of pieces to it, which you've highlighted some. So first is looking, as you mentioned, about the quality of TVET and how um, this is in Jordan. And uh, I think it's, uh, it's to be fair to say that the quality uh, could be improved. And I know that there is a lot of work that is actually happening now um, 
to really focusing on Tibet. I know the reform has been going on for decades, uh, but I think in the last year, the Tibet has become really critical and seen as a an important aspect to uh, modernize uh, the economy in Jordan. So you've seen, for example, that uh, the government established with the support, I think, of the ILO, the TV. TVSDC, which is really looking at um, a skills framework reform, which is looking at professionalizing the sectors. And of course, um, these things will take time, right? So it's not going to be an overnight solution, but I think these are the right uh, steps towards the right direction. In parallel to this, uh, of course, there is a work that the vocational training center are doing and how can the vocational training center offer quality degree that connects with the private sector that provides opportunity, but uh, also to ensure that these are safe, where girls feel safe to go and where family um, feel um, being a safe place uh, uh, for their kids that do provide opportunities to them. So there is all this other piece of the puzzle. Um, and then the mindset, the mindset issue. So again, you cannot address it in isolation, right? So until you have the the sort of the reform more, uh, a few more years into it, where you can start seeing the quality and the outcome of some of the changes that are making, I think it's going to be very difficult to change the mindset over overnight. We're actually working uh, with the Ministry of Labor at the moment in a very interesting uh, work together with an organization which is called Behavioral Insight, which really looks at uh, what are the nudges that we need to start focusing on when we start, uh, when we want to um, work with uh, fa families and teachers and youth and start talking about uh, the opportunities that the technical and vocational sector uh, does could bring to use. And we know those are not just uh, jobs because we know there are some jobs available there. So it's not just an opportunity for jobs, but it's also an opportunity of entrepreneurship, for example. And, um, and uh, the digital, I guess, transformation is another huge opportunity. So, so there are opportunities that I think are being looked at and collectively between the government and all the supporting institution, I think there is really um, a strong momentum to try to see how we can enhance and, and turn Tibet into something that young people will feel proud of uh, attending and we'll see uh, it's worth it's a worthwhile, I guess, sector to pursue. And you mentioned Luminous and HTU, and I think those two private sector really are, are sh helping, showing what the possibilities are. Um, when, I don't know if you've been to Luminous, I've been to Luminous many times, but when you go there, the place is uh, stunning. Everything is shining. Everything is the best of the best. You're not just doing, uh, I don't know, car um, engineering. You're doing the hybrid, Bosch, top of the class, really ahead of, you know, many centers that I may have also seen in Europe. And uh, in my five years that I've been here, what was interesting is that when we speak to adolescents, you know, we're starting hearing girls or even boys that are saying in focus group discussion, oh, I really would like to go to Luminous to become a chef, for example. So, and this is starting to to really change um, the mindset for sure of the young people. Um, and I guess, uh, um, you know, slowly will trickle down probably to also the families, which we know are 
an important uh, uh, voice and decision maybe have important decision making power in the life of a young person in Jordan. Um, just a comment to say that I wholeheartedly agree about um, the feeling you get when you enter Luminous. Uh, and yeah, families always um, need time, which is okay. <laughs> uh, thanks, Georgia. Yeah, tying into uh, entrepreneurship, okay. uh, has there been any, or maybe on the way in the pipeline, any uh, macro reforms that maybe the Jordanian government is, is doing to, uh, to improve uh, the you know the options for for youth becoming yeah. entrepreneurs i think <laughs> i think the uh macro level reforms i haven't seen them yet um you know there is this new vision the moderniz the modernization the economic modernization vision which talks about a bigger vision and a strategy i think it's good to see sort of the reforms that may come out as a result of that. Um, but I think having a, an important macro policy, uh, macroeconomic policy for Jordan will be very, very important to really um, also provide sustainability to some of uh, the reforms that uh, are being made. Um, and when it comes to entrepreneurship, the experience that I have is that there's been lots of investments made especially prior, prior to COVID. And uh, I know that the social entrepreneurship reform is uh, um, policy is still sitting within the parliament. And uh, I think it'd be really interesting to see uh, whether, uh, you know, once that goes through, the impact that it will have on the sector. From my experience, UNICEF has been partnering with the Ministry of Labor and with the Royal Court on a program which is called INHAD, uh, which uh, provides uh, um, uh, so uh, entrepreneurship, like really, it's a really good program on entrepreneurship training uh, that help entrepreneurs really understand whether the idea they had or the the entrepreneur enterprise idea they had works or not, and and put forward uh, through a feasibility study, which is done by first Irada and then the banks, uh, a new entrepreneurship plan, and then provides um, uh, through uh, the central bank loans uh, to young people included, uh, which are underwritten, so provide some sort of safety guards for the, for the youth. Um, and they have a, a very good rate. I think it's around 4% interest rate with the possibility of then getting the interest back once you pay off the loan. And this uh, program has been implemented for the last two years or three years now. And what was interesting is that um, in our conversation with the banks that have uh, given the loans to the youth, because there is so much focus on views, the banks have also started to understand what it means to loan to youth, where are the opportunities, which is something which is, uh, if you're a young person getting a bank, a loan bank to start an enterprise is very, very difficult in this country. So I think there is a lot of work that needs to be done. But again, I think the ambition is there. Uh, Jordan realized, uh, I mean, people have realized that in Jordan, you know, job, uh, just employment, uh, like finding a job is not the, it's not the answer. You know, you have to be your own job creator. If you if you want opportunities, because uh, the 
market is not able to employ or continue to employ graduates, the graduates that are coming out of university, let alone Tavshihi only. So focusing on entrepreneurship, um, it's, uh, I think it's, uh, it's, it's important and uh, needs to continue to be looked at both from a policy perspective, and I know the World Bank is doing a lot of work around this, um, but also from a private sector perspective and, uh, and also really preparing young people to take the leap of faith if they can and, and start their journey in entrepreneurship. Okay, so Inhat, uh, uh, which means arise, I guess, and flourish yeah. in Arabic. Um, it's great that it's focusing on something that uh, Marissa and I have always, I guess, been hearing about, which is uh, difficulty in raising and getting access to financing, even for established, mature, you know, non-youth entrepreneurs. So yeah, I could imagine that the problem is much deeper with youth. Um, is this program, how widespread is it? How many people does it actually touch? Yeah, no, it's a, look, it's a nationwide program. Um, of course, we're talking about entrepreneurship and it's connected with the banks. So in this case, it's supporting uh, Jordanian only. Um, but there are over 100 million dinars available for startups. So it's not a small program. Um, I think we've supported over 1,000, close to 2,000 startups to receive loans. And again, I think what's interesting about this program is you're moving from a grant approach, which uh, used to happen quite a bit, uh, to a more, you know, I'm not saying that those that take grants are not, don't feel the accountability, but here you're getting a loan. So you're really learning how to be accountable to, to the commitments you've made. Um, Plus, you have the opportunity of getting the interest rate back, which is also, I think, an added bonus at the end. So if you are successful in it, you have advisors that help you and start your business, support you throughout your business. You have the cash to start it and you have basically an interest-free loan in the end. So, um, But again, it's not easy. Um, but through the program, we have uh, supported some really interesting uh, enterprises. Um, for example, one is a medium enterprise in Man. So it was already an established enterprises who used the grant to grow its business. And now it's the largest, uh, pro like the do production of paper cups in, uh, in Man. So it's amazing. You go to Man and you have this really big business and they produce cups from Jordan and probably now outside of Jordan. But then you also have sort of the smaller realities in um, in Aqaba. Uh, there is this uh, woman who managed to get the grant, the loan from from the bank, and uh, she opened the first women-led bakery in in Aqaba. And with the earnings that she made through the business, and she opened it before COVID, uh, she's now sending two of her kids to medical school in Egypt. So like. And she was a, she's a woman who was married at 14 and struggled throughout her life. So you have some really, really, you know, diverse, but super interesting and powerful stories coming out of this program. Thank you so much um, for sharing more, mm -hmm. all, particularly about those who have been through um, um, Inhad. Um, and, and for our audience, um, Ma'an in particular is an interesting case in Jordan because um, it's traditionally been or historically been associated with very high unemployment and a lot of the 
um, riots and some of the political instability actually starts in Amman due to a lot of these socioeconomic pressures. Um, so you you mentioned a lot of the training programs. Um, I'm glad to hear that some of some of the beneficiaries are also already established smaller businesses or medium ones that are, you know, getting loans to grow. The um, challenge of scale um, has has been um, basically popping up in, in a lot of our discussions yeah. amongst entrepreneurs, not just in Jordan, but across the MENA region. But we recently heard from one of our guests that um, it's also the trainings um, and the workshops that are available that are primarily focused on the pre-seed and, you know, seeding phases. And that those who are, you know, on that, on the cusp of growing um, need sort of more mentorship and maybe different training. Yeah. And so it seems, it seems that there is redundancy in some of the, those training programs that are being offered uh, by, you know, a plethora of organizations, um, either international or local. So how, how do you think this particular problem can be addressed? Yeah, no, you, you spot on. I mean, I think you can go online and you would see that uh, you can find so many trainings that are offering similar things at uh, startups that are a similar level. And I think what's interesting is that um, if you're already well-established, you have places where you can go to really grow your business. And I'm thinking about sort of the bigger funders and supporters at 1 million plus. You can find loads of uh, organizations that do support. Um, but when it comes to sort of the this. The, the sort of this side of the the the, uh, the sort of the smaller startup and initiatives, you have a lot of training, but not a lot of either access to the financial um, uh, the financial aspect to to start the business, and as you say, the mentorship and the support that we know it's so critical, especially in the first twelve to eighteen months, and somebody starts a business because that's it's. Uh, the likelihood you're gonna they're gonna go bust or they're gonna close is really it will happen within that time frame. So the hands-on support needs to happen after they receive um, the initial seed funding, and should not stop there, right? And that's what's missing. Um, we're working with um, I think again because social or entrepreneurship and and social entrepreneurship has been a focus of a lot of effort in the last few years. They're now really, I think, trying to, there is this organization and I forgot the name and I can look it up and we're partnering with them where they're trying to do sort of a mapping of exactly this. So when we talk about entrepreneurship, what is the landscape analysis? And it's really, I know there was one done, uh, I think in 2017, but post COVID, uh, it's a different reality. So, so this, I think, would be really helpful to understand where the overlaps are where everybody's focusing to allow to have provide a more diversified range of support that can help um, startup the startup ecosystem at different stages um, so I hope this uh, I mean from UNICEF we're also looking forward to receiving this analysis so we can better understand where our niche is in terms of, of focusing where we may want to change 
what we're currently doing um, because it's already, as you say, over oversubscribed in a way by lots of lots of other organizations. So I think throughout all the sectors, um, really looking at uh, this enhanced coordination would be really, really important. Because there are lots of, you know, we are saying and UNICEF is saying and we're experiencing it that we are seeing a decrease on 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 uh, overseas development assistance, which is impacting our program. But to be fair, there is still quite a significant amount of funding coming in or funding that is coming into the government uh, with direct budgetary support. So increasing the coordination and understanding where the gaps are, I think will be very important to make, um, to make things more efficient and effective. Um, and in terms of the other point that you mentioned earlier in your introduction, um, which is basically the lowest female yeah. uh, participation, yeah, labor participation rate. Um, it is what the World Bank calls the MENA paradox that basically you have highly educated women in many countries around the region, be it in the GCC or North Africa or the Levant, women are outperforming men in tertiary education. But then in in a country like Jordan and in other countries, um, to a lesser extent, we're not seeing that shift um, to the workforce. Um, And we know what the challenges are because I think they're very... Um, similar in in the different settings, yeah. but if we zoom into Jordan, how how can some of these challenges be addressed? Because you have technical ones like transportation, but then you have mindsets, which is mm-hmm. a much longer process. Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, in Jordan you have the social and gender norms that are impacting on uh, these results for sure as well as more the practical aspect, like you've mentioned, um, like transportation, which in Jordan is very critical because of how the geography is, right? Um, And then also, you know, you've seen the government has uh, tried to move forward around um, uh, the nursery and the flexi, flexible working, but still, regardless of all uh, this... uh, um, changes, um, you know, it's still not necessarily translating into greater employment opportunity. Um, And then also the other aspect is the mindsets, um, the families, and also the fact that there is a lot of, um, how you say, genderization of work. Um, So, you know, you have certain sectors that um, it's perceived as a woman or a girl, you may not be able to, to to be in and others you you can so again limiting even more some of the choices <laughs> like everything i said today there isn't like one fit all solution you know to address this you need to look at it from multiple perspective at policy level what are the policies that the government needs to put in place to um, help address some of the more technical barriers as you refer to um, there needs to be a lot of work coming in from a, a probably social behavioral uh, uh, science perspective and how uh, to start shifting the mindset um, and then ensuring that there are, you know, what I think COVID has taught us is there are opportunities and there are huge opportunities within the 
digital sector that uh, girls and women can benefit from because do address or tackle some of those barriers that um, that girls face. So the home-based work uh, opportunities uh, are there. So looking at the um, the digital sector as a, an opportunity uh, also, and but not exclusively, of course, for girls. So again, we would need to look at everything from a multi-layered, I guess, in a multi-layered approach. Um, just to give you an example from what is it that we're doing in UNICEF is, first of all, we're starting young and uh, we start uh, and teaching girls about employability from the ages of 10 and above and ensure that girls are available of the different, girls and boys are available, are aware of the different opportunities that could be available for them in terms of future uh, opportunities and uh, and also the skills that are needed. So ensure you build the skills. Because although you have great attainment results within school, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have the right skill set for the private sector. So this is something else that needs to be addressed. Uh, but then in the journey is really giving them the opportunity to try those uh, sectors or to do some, do like practice their skills learned. Um, and then we're focusing a lot, particularly with girls, with um, uh, supporting them with home-based businesses where possible, supporting them. We have a very strong digital skills program that help create freelancer within the gig economy. So looking at where the opportunities are. Um, what I can tell you is that I, although COVID has had, again, a negative impact on some of the achievement made, so particularly around girls and girls' em employment, um, I think because the economic situation is tough and COVID has made it tougher, we have seen how more families, more husbands are now willing to to look at what are the options for let, uh, allowing either the daughter or the wife to uh, to work. So we've seen that, that that is starting to happen. So start changing some of this. So it, so it almost seems like the need is, helping us move the needle around the gender norms a bit. Um, but I think uh, like anything, it's, uh, it's looking at the, the multiple lenses that you need to address when looking at the girls and women employment, uh, ensuring that you're engaging with all the stakeholders, which is not necessarily just the girl, because sometimes um, she may not be the decision maker. So whether it is a family or the husband, so the work needs to happen at family level, at community level, and of course at at um, individual level. So I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, you did. You did. And we've interviewed um, women entrepreneurs most recently. I'm Adonai from Egypt uh, that uh, discussed many of these challenges. Mm. Yeah. And Georgia, you mentioned a, st uh, a statistic that was a bit alarming for Jordan specifically. Uh, is it that? Uh, out of out of the countries that are not at war, uh, yeah. female female unemployment is is the most uh, it's highest in Jordan. Is that is that was that the stat? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, from the World Bank. Is a statistic from the World Bank is um, maybe six months old. So I don't think things have changed much since. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I uh, I'm not surprised that it's that it's severe. Uh, I'm currently involved. In the private sector, actually uh, outside of Amman in a, 
area called Sahar. I'm in a, a company where this branch that I'm in has about 50 employees and uh, zero women out yeah. of 50. <laughs> I mean, the neighborhood is very rough. It's far out. It's uh, transportation is, is, is very sketchy. Um, just, and like you said, it's a confluence of so many factors, which mm. includes uh, you know, cultural norms and uh, distance and transportation. And it's just like the perfect storm for yeah. this for this to be the case. Um, it's almost as if the, the private sector has to make an extra effort and, and educate themselves on the benefits of having at least some women in, in an established mature business that, that traditionally hasn't had any like the yeah. one I'm talking about. And uh, I'm not sure that there are very visible resources, or maybe you could point to them for 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 uh, business for, for male-dominated business business owners mm-hmm. policy. You know, uh, maybe even HR managers in male-dominated businesses. Where can they look to to understand that this is not just a quota uh, issue where it's going to look nice that there's you know, 10, yeah. 10 women out of fifty, but it's more of like a actual benefits even even if it's maybe it's not a short term for the organization but maybe even for the community yeah no um you're right there isn't yet a lot of a lot available to them particularly that is relevant like to the jordanian context the world economic forum just launched last year in partnership with uh, mopic um unicef bank etihad um and uh, and other private sector, um, an accelerator, which is called Closing the Gender Gap Accelerator, which really looks at what are the catalytic factors that can help uh, um, sparehead this change in Jordan. And uh, the Women Business Association is helping with the coordination and is doing a lot of groundwork. So they started with some interesting research. With, um, it's available on their website or on the World Economic Forum website. Um, and uh, now there is a plan, um, a work plan, which looks at policies, which looks at reform that are needed to really start uh, really ca- changing the direction or the trajectories. And I think what's really interesting is that, uh, for example, Bank Etihad is part of it. And, uh, and the CEO, of course, is very, you know, she's a woman and, uh, and very passionate about this issue. Uh, so looking at how private sector to private sector can demonstrate the importance of having, you know, a more, um, <laughs> a more gender balanced, you know, as you say, company where both women and men are working. So I think it's important that this message comes from uh, private sector that have been able to enact policies and put in place systems that would allow for that. I'm mentioning Bank Etihad, um, but I think also Zane, for example, has a nursery within their own offices to ensure that, you know, it's um, parents, because it doesn't necessarily mean that it's women or the mother, but parents can you know, more easily come to work uh, after having had children because the nursery is there. So there are some interesting examples. And um, and through the World Economic Forum with this, uh, with this uh, accelerator, um, I think there is a lot of hope in trying to shine the spotlight on these issues and, and demonstrate solutions that could be applied more, uh, more across the country. 
if I may just comment on one thing, you mentioned that um, Al Etihad Bank CEO is a woman, and I think um, it makes a difference when we see more women in leadership positions because that's how um, change starts to also slowly permeate the cultures of these organizations. Yeah. Um, and um, and so that's that that's a really good example of how it makes a difference when when you have women in leadership positions and how they can also exert their influence and authority to be part of the solution. Yeah. So, Georgia, what message do you have uh, for Jordanian youth, uh, both men and women, on International Youth Day, which was last, which was a few days ago? It's a good time to also give this message because I think Tawjihi results were just announced yesterday. So a lot of young people are looking at their future. And uh, I think what I would say is, uh, you know, um, there are a lot of interesting opportunity out there. The most important thing is you need to try to pursue them and, um, and don't give up. And I know it's a tough time. We all experiencing it. COVID really made uh, the world a little bit tougher for all of us. But uh, there are a lot of opportunities and continue trying and, uh, uh, and you will be able to succeed in the end. Thank you. Thank you so much. A very positive message. And for our listeners, the Tojihi exam is the final exam of the 12th year in high school. So it's a very big deal in Jordan and in other countries in the region. Um, Georgia, thank you so much for your time and your insights. Thank you. And we look forward to continuing the discussion with you and many of your colleagues in the sector. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Georgia, and good luck with uh, further work. Thank you. This podcast is funded by a grant from the United States Department of State. The opinions, findings, and conclusions of this podcast are those of our guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the United States Department of State.